All right. Well, here we are. Uh, I'm Steve Mitchell, the director of the upcoming, well, upcoming at the time of this recording, King Cohen, which is a documentary about writer-producer, director, Maverick, Larry Cohen, who happens to be sitting in the same room with me right now as we watch special effects. And it's one of my favorites, actually. Now, as you're watching the credits, if you listen to the uh, voiceover uh, as this famous director is being interviewed, he mentions a couple of things like his favorite uh, filmmaker of all time is uh, Abraham Zapruder. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that name, he's the uh, man who made the most uh, influential film ever made, I suppose, in our time, and that is the film of the Kennedy assassination. The whole movie by Abraham Zapruder. So when he says that's his favorite filmmaker, well, take it from there. He also mentions in this voiceover that uh, if he had to choose a way to die, he wanted to be screwed to death. And if you watch the whole movie, you'll find out at the end of the film, that's exactly how he dies. He's screwed to death, but not in the way he had anticipated. And here we have the beginning of the movie shot in a simulation of the Oval Office. It's actually a sex club called the Oval Office where people come to take pictures and ogle naked girls. And here's one of them, Miss Zoe Tamerlis, the leading actress in the film. And uh, well, this came about because we were shooting at a studio over on the west side on the pier where they currently shoot things like Law and Order, the TV series. And uh, they had filmed something there uh, about the Kennedy family. Uh, I think Martin Sheen played uh, President Kennedy. And some of the sets were still left up. So when I went in and saw the set of the Oval Office that was still remaining, I immediately told my people, run out and get me uh, some Uncle Sam clothes and some red, white, and blue tights. And we're going to uh, stage the whole sequence of the sex club as the Oval Office. And that's why the Oval Office is in the movie. I thought it was very appropriate, though. I mean, because it's a symbol of authority and a great place to do something like this. And I'm surprised nobody has opened a White House as a sex club. But maybe under President Kennedy the White House, and President uh, <laughs> Clinton, it turned out to be a sex club. <laughs> Uh, so well, I not everybody is as fearless as you are, Larry, taking a national symbol like this and using it uh, in this way. Well, maybe President Clinton saw this movie and gave him the idea to <laughs> have sex in the Oval Office. He wasn't the only one. I think uh, there were other presidents who were having sex in the closed closet of the White House uh, Oval Office also. But uh, I won't go into all that. Now, was this a studio back at the time as well, or was it just a, like a warehouse space? No, that was an actual studio. They were shooting, I told you, they had just finished shooting a miniseries with Martin Sheen playing Kennedy, and uh, that's why the sets were still there. And uh, so we went there and we shot, and uh, my, it wasn't my original intention to do that scene there, but, you know, me, when I see something, I immediately try to work it into the picture as quickly as possible. And the young lady who was playing uh, the lead in the film, Zoe Tamerlis, uh, was uh, a wonderful young actress, uh, and she had starred in a movie called uh, MS-45. Ms. 45, yeah, Abel Ferrara. Abel Ferrara directed, and she played a nun who'd been raped and then went on a warpath and started hunting down rapists and killing them. So 
That was uh, an early Ferrara film, and uh, she was quite good in it. And when I heard that Zoe Tamerlis was available, I wanted to meet her right away. I wanted to see her right away. And uh, sure, she came, and I interviewed her, and she said uh, she would like to do the picture. And I was very thrilled to have her because I thought she just came off great. She has a great screen presence, a great look. She's extremely thin, and uh, it may be uh, that was because she was on drugs. I'm sad to say. Uh, it never uh, manifested itself during the shoot of the picture. It never uh, interfered in any way with the film, but uh, she did die of a drug overdose some years later in Germany. She was then known as Zoe Lund. She'd married a gentleman, and I think he was a drug addict as well, and uh, that was a tragic end to so young to this beautiful young actress. She was uh, interesting in many ways. Uh, she. Uh, had some strange proclivities. She was always trailed around by a boyfriend who at that time, he looked kind of like Vincent Price in the House of Wax, all cloaked up in a black cape with a slouch hat, looking like something that stepped out of Paris in the, uh, uh, way in the past. And he was much older. And wherever she went, he would wait in the lobby uh, he would wait downstairs, he would wait outside the studio. He just sat there and waited for her, and whenever she was finished, they, he took her away. And I never saw any interaction between them, but she was always in the company of this strange gentleman. I don't know who he was, but God bless him. And Zoe, Zoe had a strange thing about not telling anybody where she lived or giving anybody her phone number. So... Some of the crew came to me and said, uh, hey, you know, we don't know where to find Zoe, and she won't give us her phone number or her address, and this is all wrong because we have to give her the calls. And I said, well, has she ever been late on the set? They said, no. I said, she, has she ever come without knowing her lines or what scenes were going to be shot? They said, no. I said, well, then why don't you just leave Zoe alone? If she doesn't wish to tell you where she lives, that's her business. So that wasn't good enough for him, and they decided to follow her. But uh, she changed cabs and uh, eluded them, and they never did find out where she lived. Uh, the was, footage, she, was she easy to work with? She was very easy to work with. She never gave me any trouble at all. She, she was a good actress, very professional. Here's some scenes taken at my ex-wife's mother's house in Texas. <laughs> and uh, they had a ranch down there that I bought them. And uh, I said... Take, uh, go, go find a little kid and uh, put him on the swings and take some home movies of him and send him to me and I'll put him in the movie. So they took pictures of this kid down there and that's, uh, that's the family's little farm in uh, Cross Plains, Texas. And uh, of course it no longer exists. These people are all deceased now, but uh, I, I, I used their little house in the, in the film. What, I got a question for you. Was there any particular reason why you chose to make her from Texas? Uh, well, I thought, you know, uh, that she should be from somewhere either in the West or in the Midwest, somewhere rural, somewhere as far away from New York City as possible. And uh, that's what we did. And I guess Brad Wren, who plays the husband, as you'll see him there, uh, he, he's also, uh, I believe, a Midwesterner and... Uh, uh, the, the whole idea was uh, these people are fish out of water when they come to New York City. And uh, 
like many young actresses who come from all over the country, they, they congregate in New York City, try and make a living, hoping that somehow or other they'll break out and that uh, someone will give them a chance. Here she's looking across the street at the movie theater and she sees the name of Chris Neville on the uh, marquee. They're having a Chris Neville film festival. And, uh, you know, Chris Neville, I must say, was a prototype of a number of uh, very, very talented American directors who fell into hard times and were unable to get any movies made anymore. And uh, principal to this, I guess, would have to be the director who won the Academy Award for uh, uh, the wonderful movie, uh, uh, the, uh, what was it, the uh, Deer Hunter. Michael Cimino. And that's Michael Cimino. And Michael Cimino went ahead and made another film, Heaven's Gate, which was a huge disaster and went way over budget, so much so that it actually broke the bank of the United Artists Company and almost put them out of business. After that, he couldn't get another job. So the character of Chris Neville is similar, a director who had a huge high-budget box office flop and found it impossible to get financing anymore. And uh, this is uh, similar to also uh, other directors of the period who just kind of just dried up and vanished after having tremendous success. Even someone like Peter Bogdanovich, who had quite a number of successful pictures, uh, he wasn't allowed to survive uh, once he made one picture that was a disaster that I guess he decided to uh, distribute himself personally and invested a lot of his own money in the film. And uh, when that went down the drain, I think he lost his house and some, uh, you know, and his career more or less as well. So it's not unlikely that a, a director like Chris Neville would find that he can't get a job anymore and that he's kind of the object of ridicule. Unfortunately, when you get tremendous uh, press and adulation on the way up, you get the direct opposite on the way down. They're always looking for some way to pull you down off your pedestal. I've been lucky. I never got high enough on the pedestal. So I just keep making my little movies and enjoying it, and nobody bothers me. And even once in a while, somebody goes to see them. It, this picture in particular uh, you know, is, is, is a thriller. You're known more for your horror movies, but I think in your heart, I've always felt you're a thriller movie writer. Would you say that's true? I always thought my movies as thrillers, not really as pure horror. I, I never made slasher movies, and uh, uh, I, and the monster in my film, It's Alive, was uh, a, a very human monster. And uh, the, the picture was really about the family of the, uh, of the monster, the mother and father, and, uh, and what, what this catastrophe did to their lives. And so I felt that uh, the picture was really a, a, a human document rather than uh, a horror movie, and uh, this thriller here, uh, which I got finally got to make, was actually the first movie that I wrote uh, when I decided I want to direct movies. Really? And I wrote this. It was called The Cutting Room originally, and The Cutting Room was the same story exactly, except it was set in Los Angeles, uh, and uh, 
Then later on, when we decided to make the picture, I was living in New York City. I had a townhouse on 79th Street, a really fabulous five-story townhouse with uh, 25 rooms. I uh, had had a few successes, and I was living pretty high on the hog in New York. And so I decided I wanted to make the picture back east. And there were many, many filmmakers like Martin Scorsese who were headquartered in New York, Woody Allen, a number of others. <coughs> and so that's where we made the movie. And we just switched it to New York. And fortunately for us, we, uh, we actually found some great locations. Well, here's one of them now. It's the Lowell Nesbitt House in the West Village, which I think is a very, very strong contributor to the nature of this picture. Talk about this house. Well, Lowell Nesbitt was a quite well-known artist. He uh, specialized in painting things with flowers, and he sculpted with flowers, uh, flower images. And so uh, two of my associates, a very talented couple of uh, friends that were working with me, uh, Barry Schills and Barbara Zitwer, uh, they went out and found this house. It was formerly a carriage house at the turn of the century. That means they, they kept horses and buggies in this, in this building. But of course the building was completely renovated and turned into a fantastic house. And here you'll see it. There's an Andy Warhol right on the wall there. And uh, uh, suddenly I walked into this house and as soon as I saw it, I said, well, wait a minute, this is the place. This is a place where a successful movie director would live and a successful movie director would lose after he has enough flops and this poor guy was well on his way to losing this fabulous house. And he had birds in the house of all kinds. And uh, I was told he had a lynx upstairs on the third floor that they kept away from the crew. I guess the lynx might have attacked someone. So, And there in the center of the uh, main hall was a swimming pool. In a house in New York City. Right in the middle of New York City. Whoever heard of having a swimming, your private swimming pool right in the house? And, and then the corridors were amazingly lit with all kinds of crazy designs, as you can see here. Now, one of the things that I've noticed is that there is a sort of a color motif through the movie is red. There's a lot of red in the picture. And there's a lot of blood in the picture. So it's a, it all fits. Here you see the wallpaper and the paintings, the original paintings on the wall, dogs, the original paintings of stalactites, and everything you can imagine. And of course, in a moment, you're gonna be meeting Chris Neville, the, uh, the director who uh, is the protagonist in the film. And you'll see him in there on the moviola. This was a time when people still edited movies on what they call a moviola. It's before electronic editing came in. And here is uh, Eric Bogosian. This was Eric's first movie. He was currently starring off-Broadway in a one-man show that had gotten terrific reviews from the critics. And it was advertised as the Bogosian Explosion. And after I saw it, I contacted uh, his manager and I asked him if perhaps he'd like to do a movie. And here you see uh, insert shots of the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald, which again harkens back to uh, the uh, narration over the main titles where it talked about Zapruder and the uh, Kennedy assassination footage. 
And here she's looking at this footage of uh, Lee Oswald getting murdered, which is probably the most famous shot in history of anybody being murdered on camera. I don't think there's anything quite comparable to that anywhere in uh, the annals of uh, film. So, and you can run it backwards as he's doing, and then he gets murdered all over again. That's the wonderful thing about movies. You can stop them, you can rerun them, and you can kill people over and over again, as he intends to do later in the motion picture. So Bogosian, uh, you know, he, uh, he later on wrote a uh, very successful uh, play in New York called Talk Radio, and he played the lead in Talk Radio. And then later on, a motion picture was made of Talk Radio uh, by Oliver Stone, and they brought Bogosian out to Hollywood, and he uh, made the motion picture of Talk Radio. And, uh, but you found him first. Well, I only found him first. I still think this is the best piece of film he ever did. I mean, Talk Radio was fine, but there's a lot more to this performance. And uh, although today, uh, you know, last time I saw Eric, he said, I'm sorry I'm not making that movie with you now. I'm so much better an actor than I was at the time. I didn't agree with him. I thought he did a fantastic job. He was just right for the part. He looks like these guys who were famous directors. Uh, he looks enough like uh, the uh, famous director of uh, Heaven's Gate to be, uh, you know, a good a good uh, casting suggestion. Uh, neither of the actors seem to have too much trouble about doing nudity, which was fine with me. I ordinarily wouldn't force anybody to do nudity uh, if they didn't want to do it, but. Uh, I always propose it, and then the actor wants to go forward and do it for the good of the picture or for whatever. Uh, that's fine. And she, and she shouldn't have any shame about doing any nude scenes. And uh, I must say, she was very slender, but a lot of people like that. And I'm sure a lot of women in America wish that they could be as slender as Zoe Tamalis was. Uh, now, you notice the whole house is decorated in motifs of flowers. And this is the bedroom, and at the foot of the bed uh, is a uh, private jacuzzi. And so the director, who is obsessed with flowers, he uh, decides to put a flower into the scene he intends to do. And of course, his uh, secret obsession is f uh, secretly photographing sex through a uh, one-way mirror. And uh, you will see in a moment that he does that. And uh, uh, I guess uh, we've heard many stories since the time of this movie about people having uh, uh, sub, uh, uh, discovered that they've been photographed while having sex for one reason or another, or hotel rooms or residences that have been fitted with cameras. I mean, we've never lived in a period when there have been more cameras than there are today. And of course, today they just use video cameras or uh, uh, digital. Smartphones. Yeah, or smartphones or digital. Many people are, are terribly upset when they find out that they've had sex and they, and they find out that it's on uh, the internet, that some guy has photographed them secretly and put their sex life out on the internet. So here you have all this way before any of that happened. Uh, it's, uh, it's really uh, um, a much more difficult procedure here because he has to run a a uh, uh, 16 millimeter camera uh, and photograph the thing, and the camera does make some noise. 
But as you can see, we have millions of dollars worth of production value in this Lowell Nesbitt house. And, uh, uh, you Did know, you dress this room at all, or was this uh, more no, or less? No, the, the room was just as Lowell Nesbitt had it. I, I, I think even the sheets were, uh, were stuff that he had left behind for us. Uh, and uh, it was just uh, remarkable. It wouldn't have been the same movie without his house. I would have had to create everything. And, uh, you know, with the kind of budget we had, which was minimal, uh, uh, I don't know if we could have ever achieved the same effect. Did you have any idea of uh, any other location, or did you just get lucky and find the house right away? Oh, I, as I say, uh, uh, Barry and Barbara found the house, and when I saw it, there was no question that this was the house I wanted. It was just like the Chrysler Building in Kew. If we hadn't gotten the Chrysler Building, <laughs> the movie wouldn't have been the same movie. Yeah, we, we could have found some other skyscraper, but it just wouldn't have been the same motion picture. So sometimes you have to get lucky. And I guess the earmark of my entire career as a filmmaker is I've gotten lucky many times. First of all, I've gotten lucky I haven't been arrested. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I've been lucky that nobody's been injured uh, in any way on any of the films that I've made and uh, that uh, I've gotten to make the pictures in the first place because uh, getting to make a movie is always a terrible job. Raising the money to make a movie is not easy. Fortunately, we had a company called Hemdale, uh, which was headed by John Daly, a very difficult man. Uh, I'm sure everybody in the industry would agree with me that John was extremely difficult, but I think I did five movies with John over the years, including this one, and the one that was released is Perfect Strangers. Overseas, it was called Blind Alley. And then he, we did Best Seller, and, uh, uh, which was uh, probably one of my best screenplays in terms of its uh, transmission to film. It was, it was well done, and a number of others. So uh, John Daly was all right. I mean, I, uh, I had many, many disputes with him, but uh, I'm glad that he was around. I'm glad he made his films. Unfortunately, everything went bad for him in the end. And uh, when he was down and out, I took him to lunch at the Beverly Hills Polo Lounge, bought him a terrific lunch, and told him thanks. Even though he had not treated me particularly well, I, I got some pleasure out of taking him out and thanking him when he was at the nadir of his career. By the way, was it tough watching this scene when you were filming it? I mean, it's a disturbing scene to watch as an audience member, but when you were filming it, was it hard for you to watch him, you know, choke the life out of Zoe Tamerlis? I mean, I know it's make-believe, but still. Uh, I'm telling him to choke harder. And <laughs> here we have a little uh, uh, added attraction here. I put some titles in the picture. I noticed that um, Quentin Tarantino did that later on in, in his career. When he made, I saw Jackie Brown recently, and he had a couple of titles put in, uh, same as that. Of course, when we had the uh, jacuzzi tub right next to the bed, I had to write it into the movie. This wasn't in the script, but the idea that he would wash the body after killing her, I think is a very clever idea. If you want to completely hide any uh, evidence, any bodily hairs, bodily fluids, any flesh, flakes of human skin, anything. Uh, but he's not even finished. Now he's going to eventually clean her nails. So as you'll see, he's wrapping her up 
tight as a drum, and then he'll go over and clean her nails. So this is a kind of a primer for murderers. If you're gonna kill somebody, be sure they have a jacuzzi at the foot of the bed. <laughs> you don't wanna go ahead and From Mary Jean, she's gone off. When do you expect her? I don't. Mind if I wait? I'm her husband. Uh, unfortunately, I uh, have a uh, situation where very often I have to fire people the first day. Why is that? And because they have to find out who's running the show. And they've worked on too many pictures where they're able to push the director around. Right. Or, or else where there's a producer, a co-producer, or executive producer somewhere lurking around the set, or a studio executives that the actors can appeal to and thereby divide authority and make trouble. But with my films, I'm the writer, producer, director, everything. I write all the checks at the end of the day. Nobody has a word to say about the picture but me. So they soon learn that I'm the boss, I'm running the show, I'm the captain of the ship, and they have to do exactly what I asked them to do. And I never asked them to do anything that's not reasonable. And if there's anything that would be embarrassing to them, like the nudity, I wouldn't have done it. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that uh, once they know that there's nobody to appeal to and nobody else to turn to, and that's me. And I say to them, look, if there's anything that bothers you, you come and tell me about it, no matter how small it is. Don't go telling it to a production assistant or anybody else on the set. So if your mother's coming into town and you want somebody to pick her up at the airport, it has nothing to do with this movie, but don't worry, I'll take care of it. I'll have somebody there to pick your mother up at the airport. And very often, uh, actors have terrible time with you because they're upset about something that has absolutely nothing to do with the movie. Uh, it may be that one of the production assistants has gone to their trailer and said something rude to them, rapped on the door and said, get your ass out here, or you're holding up production, or something. 
that alienates the actor. So I, uh, I don't want any of that. So when the time comes to call the actors to the set, I go to their door and knock on it and say, come on, I've got some interesting things for you to do. And they come right out. On some of the films, like uh, Original Gangsters, we had a cast of black actors, and a lot of them were rap stars, and they're used to uh, uh, kind of throwing their weight around and uh, also sometimes being a little bit obnoxious. But when I came to the door and knocked on it and said, come on, I, I wrote some new stuff for you. I got some great ideas for you. They come right out with a big smile on their face. So I don't send other people around to do those little chores because it's easy enough for me to walk the 10 or 15 steps and knock on the door myself and, and bring the actors out. When I had uh, the private files of J. Edgar Hoover, everybody thought Rip Torn was going to be a very difficult actor. Uh, so I went to Rip Torn's apartment in Lower Manhattan every day in a car, and I picked him up personally and took him to the set. Uh, I liked going there because he was married to Geraldine Page, and the sign on the door where the bell was said, Torn Page. <laughs> so I got a kick out of going there and picking up old Torn Page every day. He couldn't believe the kind of service he was getting. I, I got a couple of questions for you. One about the script. I know you like to improvise when you're on location and use the room, so to speak, but uh, this script sort of feels not as improvised as some of your other movies. Did you shoot the script more or less the way you wrote it, or did you make adjustments as you were going along? Oh, we made adjustments, like, for example, the theater marquee across the street. That wasn't in the script. The fact that uh, she saw the marquee and made up the name, or that the detective, Kevin O'Connor, who you see in the background in the black coat, and that he would uh, also uh, take a look at the marquee and pick up the uh, idea that this was an improvised lie, so that none of that was in the original picture. But the Bleecker Street Cinema happened to be right across the street from where we were shooting. And so we put that in. I had no idea we were going to find a house with all these flowers and, uh, uh, and, uh, and the design of the house and the pools and the jacuzzis and all the other stuff. So. Uh, all that was made up uh, on, on the set, including the climax of the picture, which involves the swimming pool. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, I tell you the truth, I really wouldn't enjoy making these movies if I didn't uh, um, have the ability to make up stuff on the set and create stuff on the set. Did Bogosian uh, like that? or And Zoe, did, how did they respond to it? I think they loved it. I think it because it wasn't boring for them. And, and there was never times when the actors were sitting around trying to read a paperback book or take a nap or do something, uh, play chess or something, uh, to pass the time. When you go on most movie sets, everybody is so bored out of their mind waiting for the lighting to be set up. And the energy just wanes. It's just uh, people get tired because they've been waiting so long. And they know what they're going to be doing before they do it. And many times you have actors who've played the same kind of part in many, many movies. Now, uh, you know, and then they're not really playing much of a, uh, an original character. They're just giving you the usual police inspector or the same right. judge or district attorney or whatever. They've played so many times before. I try to give everybody something different to do, a character they've never played before. I try to add new dialogue and new pieces of business keep it fresh and and they like it they, they're having a good time the other thing I wanted to bring up because years ago before I met you 
I remember reading an interview with you saying, I live in California, but I love to shoot in New York. And this movie really benefits from shooting in New York, especially going out to Coney Island to dump the body. I, thought, I always thought that was fantastic. But talk a little bit about the, what you love about shooting in New York, because you've shot there so many times. Well, I grew up in New York, and, and, and New York, to me, is the greatest back lot in the world. It's everything you could possibly imagine. There's modern buildings next to old tenements. There's uh, stuff that's left over from the turn of the century. And uh, there's huge excavations where new things are being put up, where skyscrapers are being put up. I mean, where else could you find something that looks like the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building or uh, uh, the way Harlem looked for me in Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem. These are all wonderful places to go to shoot because everything's there for you when you, you, know, you, you, you walk in and you get ideas. As soon as you hit the place, you get, you get a fantastic idea. How can I innovate this into the story? How can I make this part of the, uh, of the film? So, as you, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of red in this scene, as you'll see. The, the whole the walls are red, even the sweater he has is, uh, is striped in red. One of the things I like about this shot and the downtown locations in particular is it feels kind of like it's the end of the world in a sense. This is this is extreme the extreme lower west side of Manhattan. Towards the river. Toward, towards the Hudson, not very populated. And it has a really eerie feel even during the daytime, which is great. And at night when the windows all light up, they're all wonderful uh, you know, stained glass windows. So it's an entirely different look at night as you'll see later in the motion picture. Was this, was this movie designed to be sort of a downtown kind of picture at all when you wrote it? When I wrote it, it was supposed to be California. Oh, that's so, right, of course. So when I uh, switched it to New York, I just had to go out and find the right places. And, uh, you know, once you find the right place, then you pick it up from there. See, when you make a motion picture for a studio, anytime you want to change anything or you want to come up with something different or write a new scene or vary a scene, you've got to submit it to the front office. Then a bunch of executives have to pass on it, uh, and then they have to get back to you, and then some production person comes in and finds, what's this going to cost? How much is the scene going to be? Are we going to go over budget? Maybe we shouldn't shoot this. I mean, by that time, all the energy has sapped out of you anyway, and you wish you had never brought up the subject in the first place. But in my movies, uh, you want to make a new scene up? You just make it up and do it. You don't tell anybody about it. I don't have to ask anybody's permission. Nobody looks at the dailies on my movies. Nobody gives me any comments. Uh, and uh, nobody rewrites the script except me. And uh, even here, the scene where he goes to the roof and takes pictures of the police picking this guy up, uh, that wasn't in the script. In fact, the idea of him picking him up was uh, only uh, added later on. As you'll see, a police car comes, and uh, there was no police car uh, called for. We had no, uh, uh, not hired a police car. So I told the guys, go up to the corner and hail a police car and tell them to come on down here. We need them to be in a movie. So <laughs> next thing you know, here comes the police car. And as you'll see, there it is. And we take him over, and we're going to put him in the police car, aren't we? Where's the police car? It's coming. It's Here coming. it is. There's the old police car, just on cue. <laughs> Had nothing to do with anything. These cops were just driving around. We hailed them and put them in the movie. 
And uh, so there he is in jail. Did they, did they wind up asking you about, you know, pesky things like permits or anything no, like that? No, no, nobody asked me questions like that. Don't be silly. <laughs> Permits. Permit. What's a permit? Where was this, by the way? This is a, a, a jail. Well, uh, obviously, but this is a this is a police station. Uh-huh. Uh, one thing about New York City is the uh, uh, the the city is very very reasonable about giving you locations like a police station or a jail because so many movies that are made there require uh, the location of a of a of a police precinct. So we were fortunate uh, that we didn't have any problem. This is one of the nicer prisons we have. And Where, what, what part of town was this in, do you remember? Uh, this was in, uh, in the west side, I believe, in uh, lower Manhattan. Now, is that a real cop over on the right? Uh, it sure looks like one. He could be. He very well could be. Uh, I want to point out the uh, Kevin O'Connor, the, uh, the main policeman in the thing. Uh, he's a terrific actor, winner of the Obie Award for Best Actor Off-Broadway for... Uh, Chucky's Luck, a play he did, and uh, he also was a very renowned New York acting teacher, and he was wonderful in the part. Didn't he also play Bogart in a TV movie? He actually played the life of Humphrey Bogart in the TV movie Bogey, and a uh, terrific guy, just wonderful. And, and very authentic, very legitimate feeling, which is what's great about New York actors, I think. Well, he, he just happens to be a superb actor. He's passed on since then, but... Uh, a lovely guy. I had him in a couple of pictures, and uh, you know we always had a good time. He just loved coming to the set every day, because he knew some something was going to happen. Was going to be some fun that day. You know. You, you once told me that on a number of your movies, actors would come down to the set on days they weren't scheduled to work because they wanted to see what you were going to do next. That's right, and uh, and I'm always thrilled by that when they show up and say they don't want to miss out on the fun. <laughs> they know something interesting might happen, so they want they want to be there. And if they have nothing better to do, they'll come down to the set and hang out, even though they're not getting paid for the day. And I love that. And uh, Brad Rinn was a very good young actor. He was in two of my movies. Brad Rinn was in uh, the one called Perfect Strangers, which, as I mentioned, was released as Blind Alley in Europe. And you made that just before you made this. That was made for the same company, Hemdale. They gave me the money for two pictures. I said, I'll shoot them back to back. So I really did. I finished one and started the other. Brad was the star of both pictures and a, a, a lovely actor. And uh, I said, I thought he was going to go on to be a big name. I thought, well, at the very least, he'll get a television series. Uh, but I guess he just gave up and quit the business and left New York. Uh, maybe after working for me, I guess he figured he couldn't do any better, so he might as well go on to some Everything other was going to be boring. I hope he sees this DVD somewhere and has the uh, time to contact me and just say hello and let me know what he's doing. Uh, the guy shaking his hand is playing a, a lawyer who's been hired to uh, get Brad out of jail. The lawyer claims he's not Roy Cohn, that he's a much more nasty person than Roy Cohn who was known probably as the nastiest lawyer in New York. So I In history, in. actually. In he was history. such a public persona yeah. because of the McCarthy trials yes. back in the 50s. So here, uh, uh, I used to see Roy Cohen around in restaurants. He exuded evil. Hmm. There was something about him. It's just the way he looked and his very being that uh, it was extremely unpleasant. But he was a very powerful figure in... Uh, 
in New York for quite a long time. One of the other things that I marvel at with this picture, because I know it was done very economically, is the amount of coverage that you have. Most low-budget pictures don't have a lot of coverage in scenes. Sometimes they're played out in masters, maybe some cutaways to close-ups or over the shoulders. But this movie always feels like you always got everything that you needed, everything that was necessary. Talk a little bit about how fast you work, because you must work very quickly. Well, I mean, once you get the set lit, you can do all kinds of things. I mean, here you see various angles, and uh, uh, I like to do many takes like this because I vary the performance. You know, many people say, well, you got to do the same performance in every take so you can match the shots in the editing room. I always say to the editor, don't worry about matching the shots. Just go for the performance. That's what counts. The performance is, is paramount. I'll go in the editing room and make it work. I'll put the cutaways in there. I'll Mickey Mouse it. I'll make all the uh, different uh, takes work. Uh, if I get something great out of one take, and there's a variation in the scene, I've given them different dialogue, perhaps, given blocking even sometimes. And I put it all together in the cutting room. I must admit I have a lot of fun in the cutting room. Uh, it used to be months, of course, editing a picture. Now you can do it in a matter of weeks with the uh, digital uh, equipment. But in those days, it would be uh, every little piece of film had to be hung up on pins and retrieved. And uh, particularly difficult since I didn't usually have a, a, a script girl and I usually didn't have uh, a, a lot of paperwork. Right. Uh, and, uh, Talk and we, about for a second uh, Armand Lebowitz, who, you, who was your editor on most of your pictures. Ar Armand Lebowitz was a wonderful guy and uh, he, he, did, uh, he did a number of pictures for me. And uh, we always had a good time doing it. He understood me, that's all. He just, he understood what I was saying, that, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't looking for traditional editing where the editor goes and tries to find the best match of movement. I was looking for the best uh, acting job. And, uh, and as I say, I gave him a lot of coverage to play with. And, uh, but, uh, Were but, his first cuts usually close to what you wanted? A first assemblage? Yeah. They were they were okay, yeah. But we still had a lot of work to do. I mean, it wasn't his fault or anything. Nobody expects the editor to do a first assemblage that's going to be absolutely perfect. But he certainly... Uh, what I think here in, in this picture is you have to compliment Paul Glickman for his photography. Oh, it's it's fantastic. I think it's my favorite picture that he has shot for you. He that, did a wonderful, shot for you, wonderful yeah. job with the, uh, with the color and with the sharpness of the images. And it's really nicely lit. And again, a lot of lo lower budget or more economic pictures are usually more captured than lit. But yeah, he really well see lit here the heck the, out of You'll this. see here the closet is lit. It's great. And he isn't in the foreground, and yet the whole thing really works. It's believable. And uh, it doesn't look like a low-budget picture. Not at all. <laughs> and the movie has very strong color design to me. Yeah. Which look at this. Look reminds at the smoke me of Hitchcock, here. by the way. Yeah. Well, it, it look is. At this guy. This guy was wonderful. What a New York type. You know, all these things in the film, we never knew we were going to find this elevator. We never knew it was going to look like this. We never knew we were going to play the scene in an elevator with uh, descending like this. It just all happened. When I saw the elevator, I said, come on, let's do the scene in the elevator. Let's go. Uh, in many cases, these are locations that I'd never been to before the day of the shoot. I, I would just walk in in the morning and discover something and put it into the picture. Now, 
almost nobody else does this. Uh, and of course, if you had producers hanging around and studio executives hanging around, uh, you, it wouldn't work out. The couple of times that I've had that, I usually ended up getting fired off the picture because they just couldn't understand that we could make this happen. Now, uh, now one thing I wanted to ask you is that because you work so quickly and so improvisationally and you work in real locations, how, how, what kind of camera did you use on this picture? Was it a Panavision camera? Was yeah, it an always, always a Panavision camera on every picture. And did you have much in the way of a lighting kit? Uh, oh, yeah. We had all the lights that, that Paul wanted. I, I got them all from uh, General Camera. Uh, I, I used to have a friend there at, uh, who trusted me, Dick DeBona, who was the head of General Camera. And he uh, always gave me the uh, cameras and whatever equipment I needed. Uh, and never bothered me for payment until I delivered the film, and then I could uh, uh, then I could go back and pay him the bill. I always paid everything in full. Uh, he always gave me a break, but he he never uh, he never uh, bothered me for the money until such time as I had sold the picture. In this particular case, Hemdale was going to finance it, and I knew we had the money coming, uh, but we had to make the picture first. Right. So here we have Kevin O'Connor, who is this wonderful stage actor and acting teacher. And uh, what, a, what a break it was getting him in the picture. And uh, I, I wish he was still around so I could work with him again. He, uh, he is questioning the uh, director. Uh, he, he ended up having a cut on his hand, as you'll see. So I said, what happened? He said, oh, I cut my hand. I says, well, then we have to write it into the movie, right? We can't have you walking around with a bandage on your hand unless we bring it up and mention it. So, uh, so I wrote some dialogue that he was picking up a murder weapon, uh, uh, which he shouldn't have been handling, and he cut his finger on it. So he said he just can't keep his hands off things. He can't keep his hands off touching people and feeling the fabric on their clothing and, and all kinds of stuff like that that just played into the... Uh, the nature of who yeah, he is. And you can see how beautifully lit and how beautifully uh, laid out this particular scene is here, the, how the colors are just so lovely. And uh, Bogosian and him are playing off of each other so well. And then I said, you know, there's so many flowers in this house. I'll tell you what you do. I'll give you a line. You say, you say to Bogosian, how, what's this thing with flowers? Why are you so obsessed with flowers? And then Bogosian, you say to him, I don't know, uh, they're so beautiful, and they die so quickly. And I thought that was such an ominous statement, particularly since we knew he's a murderer. Right. And so we just put it into the picture. It, wasn't, it was just made up on the spur of the moment. It was never even written down on a piece of paper. How, how did O'Connor, who comes from the theater where the text is everything, feel about your, your improvisations and your, your changes and your, you know, the things you would do in the moment? Well, he was an acting teacher, and improvisation is certainly part of that. Uh, but he just loved working with me. He couldn't wait to get there every day. He was, he he was he was wanted to be part of the fun, and I must say, look at look at how beautiful this looks. It's great. It, it, the truth is, this is one of the lowest budget movies I've ever made, and uh, and, and has some of the greatest production values of any of the films that I've done. And uh, I, again, I must credit this magical house that we ended up being in. Which, by the way, when uh, we had originally talked about this house, I said, I gotta, I gotta look this up. And I went to, I guess, 
uh, Wikipedia or the internet, and I looked up Lowell Nesbitt, and apparently this house had been bought by Diane von Furstenberg, and this was sort of, I think, a home-slash-office, and then eventually it was sold and sadly destroyed, and an apartment building, I think, a very expensive high-rise condo-type building oh, is in its that's place. that's so sad to hear. It's that this, tragic because this, it's a remark. It was, did this this building have landmark status, or I have they were no, trying to get landmark status? Well, if it had landmark status, it wouldn't have been torn that's down. That's true, yeah. But uh, it's I, so unique. It's so unique for the, for the city. Who's going to find a place like this in New York City? You'd have Nothing. to build it. Nothing. It was amazing. As I say, it was a carriage house at one time. It was. A, it's just a lovely place. And is is Lowell Nesbitt alive? He passed away some years ago. He did. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Now, now look at this. One of my favorite shots in the movie. You just you don't know what it is at first. I and know. Then, then he steps out. And he's walking across the faces of all these actors. How long did it take to put all those pictures? <laughs> I have no idea. It must have just, taken a day. I just told them to do it. I told them, get every picture of every actress you can find in, <laughs> in New York and put them on the floor. We'll keep further away from them so you can't identify them. So we don't want any of the actors claiming that we put their picture into the movie without paying them. But... Uh, and that's the way it was. It was a striking shot, I thought. It's, it's an interesting statement about casting because casting, when you, see a, when you see a movie, you don't know the process that goes in it. And then when you cast a movie, sometimes you literally have to see hundreds of thousands. That was Dustin Hoffman there, I think. Uh, oh, I don't you know, know if it was. It, well, Dustin Hoffman is Dorothy Michaels. Well, I don't know if that was or uh, not. Maybe I, not. That may have been a mistake on your part. But, okay. Uh, uh, but anyway, it's... There's so many actors in New York, and it's like, it, it's daunting sometimes to find the right one. And I love that camera move where you were swirling around. Mm -hmm. It's almost, you can get dizzy from it. Well, it's the sad part of uh, being an actress or even an actor in a place like New York City. There's, there's so many of them, and so few of them succeed. Yeah. And so many disappointments, so many broken hearts. And so many of them were talented, and they're, they're schooled, and they had craft. Some, and, oh, many of them. Uh, or big stars in their hometown, right? In their little theater group, in their in their in, in their high school and college, and then they come to New York and they're waiting on tables, and that's it. So I mean, Brad Rinn came here. Uh, he was in another picture before mine, but uh, but I can't remember the name of it actually. But it was. Uh, he didn't do a lot. I think I looked him up uh, on the internet just to see if he had many credits, and he didn't. No, no, he just disappeared. Yeah. But here, he, I mean, you couldn't ask for better film than he had in this film. He's he's all over the place. And when the reviews came out in the New York Times, he got all the reviews. The the critic who wrote the review in the Times singled him out as being extremely special. And here we have, again, the same kind of thing. All these actresses lined up doing lines from the picture. And, uh, uh, and and all being ridiculed or, or rejected. And who's sitting in the audience rejecting them but the detective who's supposed <laughs> to be investigating the case who's now gotten bitten by the show business bug. He's been hired to be a consultant on the movie. And you know a lot of these cops do get hired as consultants. Oh, of course. Like on The French Connection. Sonny Grasso uh, got hired as a consultant 
and uh, Rand, after a Randy while, Randy Jurgensen. Yeah, and you know, but Sonny Grasso was a good example because a, a couple of years later, Sonny Grasso was producing movies, and Sonny Grasso was producing television series. Yeah, Night Heat, I think it was. I did a, yeah. a series with Sonny Grasso, who was one of the two detectives in the French Connection case, the one that was played by Roy Scheider in the movie. And Sonny and I did a TV show called Cop Talk, which was a, uh, a, a syndicated show. Uh, about police sitting around swapping stories about their cr criminal careers and uh, later segued into being called Top Cop, which became a TV uh, a documentary series on CBS for a couple of years. So Sonny uh, and I had a pretty good relationship, and uh, uh, this, is kind of, this kind of plays off of it because, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't a comedic figure. There's Barry Schultz, who was my associate on the film, and invaluable in every way possible. Barry went on to produce a movie uh, called Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage, uh, when Barbara Zitwer uh, was his co-producer with him. And then Barry went on to direct uh, Wigstock, a documentary about a famous drag festival in Greenwich Village. So Barry's a wonderful guy, and uh, I was sure lucky to have him on the picture, and uh, he was on five or six of my movies. Now, did you go into a real club and grab that, or did you stay at this? <coughs> this was a real club, and you could very well have been Studio 54. Uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, naturally, we sure had a lot of people in the, uh, yeah. that's Barry Schultz again, and uh, in those days, I was, I was single, and I never minded having a lot of pretty girls in the movies. Well, you got an awful lot of them in this scene. Yeah, I'll tell you, take your pick. But anyway, uh, we even had a fire eater in the, uh, at the uh, end of the sequence to put a little capper on the, uh, on the sequence. The other thing that, again, continually strikes me is just how the use of the color in this picture, you know, the color design, again, red being the red motif. Coming, once again, the red flashes. Yeah, it's great. Everything. Yeah. So did, did Brad know that was coming? That I don't kiss? think so. I don't think so. But he got it anyway. Yeah. I gave him away to the Salvation Army. Well, I need him. He never told him. Get him back. How am I going to get him back now? So Bogosian came out here and played a villain in a couple of movies. Uh, he did one with Steven Seagal. Under Siege 2, I think it was. Yeah, it was on a train. Mm -hmm. And he was the mastermind of the uh, criminal activity. And in recent years, he's been a regular on uh, one of the Law & Order series. He's still around, and he's very friendly to me. And I believe he's in the documentary, yes, uh, he is. King he's... Cohen. And I think he says nice things. This was actually shot at the Salvation Army. And, uh, when so when you went over there and you say, can we shoot a movie in here? And did they say, sure? Well, uh, Barry and Barbara got me the location. Again, they were in charge of that part of it. But when I went over there and saw it, I mean, you know, it was fabulous because there it is, all these clothes piled miles high. Well, it's great because it's big and it's deep. And so you can get great deep focus in here and production value. Yeah. And here you hardly realize it's the same girl here. Yeah. I mean, and she was doing a New York accent, and she's kind of Jewish uh, kind of girl, and uh, 
Her movements were different. Her hand movements were different. And here we have what's really there. This is what they collect. And miles and miles and miles of garbage. Now, what kind of, look, the average production would have to create this. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to rent a hall, bring in all this garbage, put all this garbage there, stack it up. I mean, you talk about days and days and days of preparation for something like this. Here I walked in, I saw it, I says, here's where we're gonna shoot. Bang, that's it, we shot, we're in and out of there in, in less than a day. I gotta, I gotta ask, I notice again, there is red in every setup and every frame. Did you pepper some red sweaters or shirts? No. With all the other stuff, that was just what was there. That was there. That's what and was I noticed. There. He's, he's got his red uh, sweatshirt yeah, on. I wish something. I could say that, uh, that some of it isn't accidental, but it is. Well, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, you know. Yeah. When, when you find stuff that works for your vision, well, I mean, again, it's there's red peppered all over the place. It's great. Now she, of course, is going to be transformed into the murdered girl. So we get a touch of uh, vertigo. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, Brian De Palma had been trying to do Vertigo over and over again. Other pictures, uh, Obsession, I guess, was the most uh, blatant. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, borrowing of Hitchcock. Uh, I thought, well, you know. It, but isn't every thriller writer filmmaker sort of a son of Hitchcock in some ways? In some ways, you got you got to find a difference between me and Hitchcock is that, God bless him. All of Hitchcock's material is all based on books, short stories, and scripts written right. by other people. He didn't come up with all these uh, gags. They, uh, they all came about uh, as a result of him buying the material and usually having two and three writers come in and work on them. And some of them, the best ones like Ben Hecht, did a number of pictures for him. Samuel Taylor, good people, Broadway people who he brought out to do uh, screenplays. But these are, not, these are not all original ideas of his. And uh, his treatment of the movies is, is very much all hitch. You right. can tell his pictures by looking at them. But he didn't create these, uh, these characters and he didn't create these situations. I must say, for all what it's worth, every frame and every line in any of these movies is all me. So uh, I, I had unique uh, privilege of being able to make my own movies the way I wanted to make them. And every frame of them is the same. I don't think there's any other director around who wrote, produced, and directed 20 movies and and basically can lay claim to every frame of the picture. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. A friend of mine, a late friend of mine, had seen Perfect Strangers one night. And he said, I saw this Larry Cohen movie I'd never heard about. And I said, really? I said, <laughs> what was it called? He said, Perfect Stranger. I said, well, what, how was it? And he paused for a moment. And he said, it's a Larry Cohen movie. And I knew exactly what he meant. I knew the type of story it was, how you would go about telling the story, the fact it was New York. You know, so your name means something to people who watch movies. Yeah. Well, that it, it says something. They know what they're in for. Just look at the way she looks at him in these, in these scenes. She's a different person. That's the thing that's so great about this performance. She's not the girl from the beginning. She really looks good as a brunette. She does. She looked good regardless, but I like I her. I think as she's a brunette. better as a brunette. Yeah. She was a brunette in the, in the uh, uh, MS forty five. Mm -hmm. She's naturally a brunette. I think, yeah, yeah, I believe so. But, but look, look at, at look at the performance. Look at, look she's totally different from the girl in the beginning. Yeah, and isn't she? You know, talking about Audrey Hepburn. Uh, yeah. Who, 
Talk about her being skinny. Audrey Hepburn was probably skinnier than than Zoe. Uh, it was, uh, you know, amazing. The way she looks on camera, uh, she should have been a, a big star. The, the camera finds her fascinating, I think. Yeah, and, and I think she's a big star. I wish that, uh, that life had treated her differently. So anyway, every time she came to the set, she carried a, a big purse with her, a big bag. Right. And when she moved from one place to another, she took the bag with her. And I said, what are you carrying that big bag around all the time for? And she says, oh, my screenplay is in here. I said, your screenplay's in here? He said, why do you have to bring it with you? He said, well, if I leave it back in my apartment, someone could break in and steal it. I said, you really think someone's going to come and steal your screenplay? Well, it's possible, <laughs> she said. So I have to take it everywhere. I said, well, don't you have another copy of it? She says, I can't give it to a copy store. They could make a copy for themselves and, 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 and make off with it. And so uh, she had this fixation that she had to carry this script with her every place she went. And she did for the entire production. And the script in the bag was The Bad Lieutenant, which became a well-known picture with Harvey Kirtel, which was directed by Abel Ferrara. Abel Ferrara. And later on was remade again, later on with a, a different- With Nicolas Cage, I Nicolas think. Nicolas Cage, yeah. I believe. And by that time, I believe she probably was deceased. She'd passed away. Yeah. yeah. So can you believe she actually wrote that script? And, and that's a pretty heavy, dark script, too. Yes, and that was she. There she is. Isn't that something? Uh, talk about the cinema loving a, a face. Mm -hmm. there, this, this girl had a beautiful face for a movie star. A film historian uh, pal of mine who's in the, my documentary called Zoe, the muse of underground, New York underground cinema. And I think he's right. But she did so little. But uh, look at the impact. She was, in her own way, the James Dean of her, of her time. Well, in she, a way, she uh, did a few films, but was really, you know, that made a big di difference, made I a don't big know impact. What, I, besides MS-45, I don't know what else she did besides this picture. She did this for you. I, I think she had guest starred on Miami Vice. Um, isn't she in Bad Lieutenant? She may be. Yeah, I, I think she might be in it. Hey, now, hey, talk about this. Here we are, Rockefeller Center at Christmas, Christmas time, and you were shooting... Yeah. Your movie. Did you just go in there with a camera of and follow course, the, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And here we are by the Plaza Hotel with all the horse and buggies. Again, I mean, for it, those of you who don't live in New York, the thing about New York is no matter which way you point the camera, you're going to get a great shot. Well, this was I wanted to showcase the, the, the city. There's the Sherry Netherland Hotel in the background. And I, I wanted to, if I'm going to shoot something, I might as well shoot it in an interesting place. Didn't you shoot uh, <laughs> uh, the hot dog massacre scene in Hell Up in Harlem about 20 yards from here? Across the street in the yeah. Bay, Central Park. Yeah. This Wait. part. Now look at that. That's great. That you you know again a real location. You get that that ceiling. It's great. It's a real laboratory, a film lab. Is that Duart or TVC? You remember? I'm not sure which lab did this. I think TVC did this. Because uh, I had a deal over there with uh, Dan Sandberg at TVC that was similar to the one I had with Panavision, where they had do the work for me and wouldn't charge me for it until the picture was finished. After I'd done four or five pictures with them, they always knew they were going to get paid. And uh, I never had an, a circumstance where any bill was unpaid. Everybody got treated properly. And because I wanted to come back again and... Uh, 
It all started when I first made bone, and I was fortunate enough to be given credit over at the MGM Laboratories. And uh, that was one of the breaks I had to start my career. Once the MGM Labs gave me uh, free processing and printing uh, and let me alone, and let me make my picture first, then I was in business. And after that, I, I always uh, went out of my way to make friends with the uh, 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 motion picture uh, laboratories and the uh, sound houses and the uh, uh, equipment, equipment houses. houses and everybody. I always treated them well. I always had meals with them and, and you know, had a cordial relationship with them. And I must say, that always goes a long way. Even on the few pictures that I had Teamsters on later on, when I was required to take Teamsters, uh, and I wasn't too happy about it, I always uh, made sure that I stopped every day and chatted with the Teamsters and made a few jokes. And they'd invite me to eat with them because they would not eat the food from the rest of the crew. And so I, Teamsters always ate well. Yeah. Here he's strangling his uh, blackmailer to death with a strip of film. He's using film to kill. Well, before there was a semblance of using film to kill, he killed the woman while he was filming her. So now he's killing again with film. And he takes the gloves off and he says, well, now that's fresh. Because uh, he'd never seen anybody kill that way before. And uh, originality is important. Here, this scene was shot in Sardis. Sardis, yeah. This is the beautiful Sardis restaurant, the upstairs dining room. And across the street, you can see, I guess, a chorus line is still playing. And you can see the, uh, there it is. You can see the, and, and, and Bogosian is doing a bit from his off-Broadway show. I said, come on, do, do my, one of your bits from the off-Broadway show. So he did a bit for me. And, uh, he, there he is. He's playing an Italian, Italian restaurateur. <laughs> and he's having a good time. And then Zoe showed me that she could do a trick. She could make her ears wiggle. So I said, look, if you want your ears to wiggle uh, in the movie, I'll do a shot of your ears wiggling and put it into the movie. And nothing ever makes the actor happier than to have some kind of little gag that they know how to do uh, as part of the uh, production. And there she is, we had her hair put up, give her an entirely different look. And and I, I loved Sardis. I liked doing this scene. As a matter of fact, one of the things I remember about this sequence is that uh, I had a toothache. And there she is, wiggling her ears, see? <laughs> and she got to do it. And that made her happy that she got to do that in the movie. That made me happy. Here comes uh, an actor who had appeared in uh, A Perfect Strangers, in one of the leads, and he plays a Hollywood agent who's now a producer or a studio head. But at any rate, here I am directing this scene, and I got this terrible toothache. So I said to uh, my associates, uh, you got to find me a dentist. So they had to dig up a dentist who'd come to Sardi's in the middle of the day. <laughs> and. And while I'm directing a movie, I'm sitting there in the chair with my mouth open. He's doing some work, some dental work. Oh, on wow. Yeah, he's putting a temporary in there and, and cleaning out the tooth. And I'm directing the movie at the same time. So I say, well, where else could this happen, right? 
Only in multitasking uh, uh, as always, Larry. Only in a Larry Cohen movie yeah. could I be getting dental surgery and direct a movie at the same moment in Sardis of all places. How long did they let you shoot up there? How long? One day we were there. You were there for a whole day? Yeah, we paid for a day. Uh huh. I think I paid him fifteen hundred dollars to shoot up there. And Vincent Sardi was a friend of mine. The guy who owned the place. He and mm -hmm. I had been friends. We went on a couple of trips together. We went to Egypt together, and uh, uh, and we went. I think we went to London together, and we had a very good time, a very good relationship. And I was I was in Saudis always uh, two or three times a week, having having fun with him. And uh, well, my guess is if you weren't pals, you might not have been able to get that room. Maybe, and uh, you know he was a lovely guy. And it's never been the same there quite since he's gone. But Where's this? This Is this, uh, this is a Penn Station, maybe? I think it's an airport or something. Oh, okay. And he's shooting the scene here, and and then he doesn't like it, you see. He doesn't. He now, are some of the extras in the background people who were walking through there at the time? I don't. I think some of them are, yeah. I, there were some people in the crowd. That guy chewing gum in the background, he just doesn't look like he's hes an extra or an actor at all. Well, Just some guy. But he's great because he's so New York. There's a real sound man on the picture. Uh-huh. We included the crew in the film. Why not? But every scene photographically looks lovely. I mean, every shot is beautifully framed and beautifully photographed and lit. And uh, I, uh, I must say, I was very pleased with it. Talk about your relationship with Paul Glickman. I mean, how much did he need from you to do his job? Or was he just say, tell me where, where to point the camera and I'll do it? Tell me how to light it? Well, how did you guys work? Because you did so many movies together. Yeah, well, you know, at, at first he thought I was crazy, of course, because he <laughs> never worked with anybody like me before. I think he, I think he did do a, 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 some pictures with some independent films, and he did some softcore porno movies before uh, I got him. And, right. Uh, and uh, he, uh, uh, I guess the first picture we were on was, must have been, must have been God Told Me To. <coughs> but I think it was, yeah. But whatever it is, I always set up the shots. I always uh, told him exactly what the shot was going to be and how to frame it, and, uh, and he, would, uh, he would light it then. He had an unusual way of lighting sets. He had a Polaroid camera. He would uh, he would take a Polaroid picture of the setup, and and check out out on the Polaroid. And then based on what he saw on the Polaroid, that's how he lit the set. Right. I never saw any other cameraman who uh, used a Polaroid like that. It's kind of brilliant, actually, isn't it? Well, I didn't know if it was or not. I wasn't used to uh, seeing anybody do that. But uh, he, uh, he he that's the way he worked. And I never really had any trouble with him. Uh, uh, on J. Edgar Hoover, we did have an argument one day, and he, he ripped the cable out of the camera and walked away. Mm. And we had to repair it. But he came back, like they always do. They always come back. And when they come back, everything is as good as new, and we go on and make the picture. And I must say, we, uh, we shot, long, shot long hours on this film. But... Nobody ever complained. Were you working like 15, 16-hour days? Oh, easy. Easy, okay. But uh, what happened is, see how nice that looks? Yeah. Uh, what happened is uh, the, the picture gets finished, 
And then I announce I'm going to do another picture. And the same people show up. They want to work for me again. So uh, they complain I'm working them to death. But when it comes time for another picture, they all want to work for me again because the truth of the matter is they all have a good time on the film because they don't know what to expect next. It isn't the usual boring waiting. Doesn't Bog sure. Bogosian said to me that he thought that he learned a ton working with you. That he, he, he really learned a lot and how to work fast and how to improvise. Well, he never made any movies of his own, though, did he? I don't think so. He could have. He, he's very well connected in New York with the, uh, with the uh, arts scene, and, and he could have got probably anybody he wanted to work with him, probably for no money. So uh, uh, Now, did you have a production designer on this picture? No, I'm the production designer. Well, again, this movie looks so designed, especially with the use of color. Even the costumes, the way the costumes <laughs> complement or contrast the color, the color schemes. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But, you know, uh, we had nobody to do that. Everything was set up by me. I picked the clothes, and, uh, the, and the lighting was, of course, Glickman. I have to give Glickman credit for it. That's a very technicolor-looking kind of shot. Yeah. This is a... This, at the beginning of this movie, you see the MGM logo. And for my money, this looks like an MGM movie. It does. Even though it was only made for a couple hundred thousand dollars. I mean, one of the interesting things about the picture is that none of these actors in this film were members of the Screen Actors Guild. Hmm. Everybody here was not in SAG. So I didn't have to pay them SAG salaries. I didn't have to pay them SAG overtime meal penalties, or anything else. I didn't have to uh, file a, uh, statements with SAG as to uh, uh, the number of hours everybody worked. Uh, we weren't subject to any regulations of any kind. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have made the movie if I had gone with SAG players because I couldn't have afforded it. Now, were you ever worried that you could, you know, that you might not be able to find such good actors? Because the actors in, in, in this movie in particular, I think, are really great. Bogosian and, and Zoe in particular. Yes, here we are in front of the Palm Restaurant, where I love to eat. Is that on 2nd Avenue? Yeah, in the 40s. Yeah. There's Palm 2, and the Palm, uh, original Palm is the other side of the street. But for lighting, we went on to this side of the street. Well, one of the things that's great about this is it's shot during the winter, and I noticed at one point it was 15 degrees out, so it must have been rough. But winter light in New York is not like light anywhere else, and this is a great example of that. You know, the sun is out, I'm, I'm sure, this day, but you have these great gray tonal qualities. Well, the good things about overcast is yeah. there are no shadows in the eye sockets. When you shoot on a sunny day, uh, everybody's eyes are all darkened, and shaded, so you, everybody looks like they got a hollow in their eyes. You don't get to see the eyes. Right. But when you're shooting on overcast day, it's like putting a scrim up over everybody, and uh, so that's that's why everything looks so good. It's and look at all that production value. You've got all these dozens and dozens of cars going by. And you and know, in a regular motion picture, they'd close the street down. Oh, sure, and then they'd, they'd all have pick production cars. Yeah. Right. Every, every minute of life is made miserable by, uh, the, uh, by the rules and regulations. And, of course, when you go out into the street to shoot, first thing they do is they bring these trailers. Right. All the actors have to have trailers with toilets in there, and they put these trailers out, and the trailers block up the whole street. 
and they get and they get a lot of attention because people see a movie's being made. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, of course, what happens is the actors' company complains: the toilet isn't working in my trailer. By the way, is this the same uh, stage where the White House set was? Yes, yes. The White House set was just down the block about, you know, uh, a few hundred yards. And we, we only rented the place to do this sequence in. I discovered the White House location while we were here. I had no idea it was there before. Uh, this is, again, the case of my never seeing these locations before we go to shoot. I usually left it up to Barry Schills. Right. And he found the locations for me. And uh, I don't think we ever rejected a location. We, I always found some way to work it into the uh, story, even though uh, it may uh, not have been exactly what I wanted originally. I made it better because I worked it into the story. Now, Bogosian, I think, told me when I talked with him that it was very cold on that stage. There was no heat in that place. Wow. And you were shooting in December, I think. Yeah, this, this was, uh, they just opened this place up for uh, filming. And today, of course, they've completely renovated it and made it into a really first-class uh, motion picture studio, which is busy all the time. Now, is that Chelsea Piers? Yes. They, uh, the they, home of Law & Order. That's what I said earlier. Yeah, they shoot yeah. Law & Order over there. And uh, at the time, we were one of the first ones to shoot there, but not the first because they... They had had the uh, Kennedy uh, uh, documentary film or uh, uh, docudrama kind of film. With right. Uh, Martin Sheen played Kennedy, I believe. But she looks good here, too, even as a blonde. And again, what I liked about her performance is even though she is impersonating the character from the beginning of the movie, the, the librarian-looking Jewish girl from the uh, Salvation Army still comes through. And by the way, it's, here's his red robe. Yeah. And there's the red walls. There's red all through this picture. It's great. And he's setting the whole thing up. He's going to put the rose on the pillow. No, this this is a basically a mini copy of, of the actual bedroom in, at Lowell Nesbitt's Yeah, house. right. Yeah. We had them... Uh, I had them copy it over. So it, would ha it had to be a, a uh, look identical because he wants to use the actual footage of the murder mm -hmm. in the fictional movie. He wants to take a real murder and insert it into a fictional motion picture so that the audience will experience the actual murder on the screen along with the fictional motion picture about the murder. Now, the closest ever came to this, and I thought it was extremely bad taste, was in the original movie, In Cold Blood, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Brooks. They actually went to the house where the Clutter family were massacred. Right. And they actually shot the killings of the Clutter family in the actual rooms in which they were murdered. Mm -hmm. And I thought, since the location was so innocuous, it was such an ordinary-looking house, that there was no reason to go there and shoot the stuff in those real locations. There was something kind of obscene about, about shooting a murder of somebody in a place where they were really murdered. Mm -hmm. I just thought that, that was such bad taste. Uh, it was painful to me to see it, but it didn't bother anybody else. Right. But it still carried over when I was writing this script some years later that, that you could take a, you could come pretty close to a real murder and put it into an entertainment movie. Mm. And uh, I, I, I'm constantly befuddled when I watch all these documentaries on television, every night there's a, diff a, a half a dozen different shows about real murders. Uh, 
and uh, forensic files and those kind of yeah, things. True crime is very big. And it's all over the place. And they constantly get the relatives and family and friends of the murder victims to come on and talk and tell their story. And I'm saying, why would people want to go on television and talk about the murder of their son or daughter or sister or wife? Why would they want to do such a thing? What do they get out of it? Why do they want to be used and then have a bunch of commercials for automobiles and and aphrodisiacs and everything else in in between? Every time you cut away, there's a commercial comes on. Right. Then comes back the family, the murder, all the details, uh, actual footage sometimes of the mur murderer being taken away in handcuffs. Why would anybody want to participate in this? I, I guess people just want to be on television. Well, They'll do anything. We live in a voyeuristic society, too. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, that's the backbone but of you this don't have to. Yeah. you don't have to be interviewed if you don't want to be. That's you true. don't have to go on television and tell them how terrible it is that your daughter was raped and murdered. I mean, to me, it's, uh, I, I, can't, I can't deal with that. I mean, I, I, I would never do a uh, movie about a real-life murder. Right. I would never do a motion picture exploiting the actual death of a real person. Other people do all the time, but I, I, I couldn't do that. But I can certainly make up a murder, as you can see here. It's a pretty good murder. Yeah. Now, is there, I just happen to notice that uh, the film that Bogosian is cutting all the time at 16 millimeter, was that for convenience or was he shooting in 16? No, he was shooting in 16 millimeter, I think. Considering, I mean, you would think a guy like this would shoot in 35. Well, the, the original footage of the killing was in 16mm, which means he'd have to make the whole picture in 16mm to give it a unifying look. Uh, and also because he's out of money. Right, that's true. Now, for people who, who only know the digital world, look at all those boxes of film. They that's all, the way it used to be done. It's not on a file on a laptop anymore, on a, on a desktop. Yeah, well, in those days, all, most of the uh, uh, editors had the film cataloged. Right. And it, there was a book, and the book was had numbers on it, and the numbers covered the different scenes as they were shot, because they had a script girl, and uh, they, the script girl would write down the numbers of the scenes as they were being uh, photographed. But we didn't have any of that. You know, uh, on almost every movie, they make up what they call a board. Right. Which is made of these long strips, and on each strip tells you the... Uh, uh, you know, the name of the shot, how many people are in the shot, all the stuff about the uh, principal photography, and that's, and that's moved around, so they schedule the shoot that way with the board. I never have a board. Well, Nobody because knows. you don't have a production manager usually, no, do you? There is no production manager. Because uh, he's responsible for the boarding of a picture. Yeah, well, I've had a couple of pictures where they made the board up, but I never looked at them. <laughs> uh, I, I love that shot. That's great. This is a wonderful silhouette shot across. Again, with the red, red yeah. the red neon and there the colors of Times Square back in the 80s. Right across the street. This building is, a, is the film building on Broadway there, where they do have a lot of editing rooms upstairs. And screening rooms, and too. And screening rooms, yeah. yeah. You, know, you know the area. Now, so, Times Square does not look like this anymore. No, it's all. It, this was the sleaze time. Yeah, when they had a lot of uh, 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 sex shops and uh, and and nude new dancing clubs and mixed uh, amongst some very big old school movie theaters too. Yeah, well, all the movie theaters are gone from Broadway. Yeah, everything I used to go down to when I was a kid, the Astor, the you know, all those all those theaters are all gone. The Rivoli. 
where we premiered uh, Q, uh, you know, fabulous theaters. You know, the Low State, the uh, yeah, RKO State used Twin. To have stage shows, the Capitol Theater used to have stage shows, and of course the Roxy, where I went for many times as a kid to see people on stage like Jack Benny and Danny Kay. And where else could you go in for 55 cents before 1 p.m.? <laughs> stay all day and see right. the stage show two or three times. They didn't, they didn't uh, uh, close down the theater after the movie. It was continuous. People kept coming in all day long and going out, and the movies kept playing, and they didn't, they didn't ever clear the theater. So you could stay there all day and see the same and, movie. And a lot of times people in the old days would come in the middle of the movie and just stay around to where they came in. And they'd say, this is where we came in, and then Time they'd to go. go home. Sure, that's it. But with me... I was happy to go down there because if Danny Kaye was coming on, he, every show was going to be different. He would always do something else. And I just sit there all day and watch the, and wait for the Danny Kaye stage show to come back on. My God, Abbott and Costello were at the Roxy. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. Exciting times. <laughs> Not that, anymore. That thing over there that, that Brad is handling is what they call a projector. That's Which for generations today, they would have no idea what those what a projector does. Well, in those days, people did have home movies. Yeah, they people could rent a movie on 16 millimeter right. and play it at home on the wall or on a sheet they'd put it up on the wall. But doesn't she look terrific? She does. And the wardrobe is nice too. I mean, it, now did you pick the wardrobe or did you have help with that? <coughs> I had help with her clothes. I, I pretty much let her pick out what she wanted to wear. I, I think a, Bogosian looks good too. Is, was he just bringing his own clothes to the to the set? You know, I very often ask the actors to bring stuff. And you know, uh, with, with some of the movies like uh, Black Caesar, I gave Fred Williamson some money to go out and buy uh, uh, all the wardrobe. Right. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I actually didn't give him the money right up front. I told him, go pick out what you want, bring him over here and bring me the bill. So we came <laughs> back, he had six suits. He gave me a bill for like $450. I said, for each suit? He says, no, for all of them. I said, how can he get six suits for $450? He says, I got a deal. I says, but they look so sensational. He says, everything looks good on me. <laughs> so. Did he ask to keep the clothes afterwards? I suppose I gave them to him. Yeah. Uh, I'm not uh, big about not giving them the wardrobe because what am I going to do with it? What can I do with the wardrobe, you know? Uh, take it home, put it in the closet. I have no room for it. So it's not like I'm a studio where we can... Uh, right. No, I, uh, I I like to give them the wardrobe if they want it. And, uh, and even if they don't want it. But I just, uh, I just love to be nice to the actors and uh, try and treat them decently. And they always appreciate it. Oh, God, look at that film getting mangled. It hurts yeah. to watch that. Yeah, well, it didn't actually burn up the way I wanted it to, but it was good enough. Again, great use of shadows. Yeah. And that house, we, uh, we got lucky with that house, too, that apartment building. That's where we shot all those scenes, right? Now, did you have any problem with the neighbor, with the neighbors or the neighborhood? Because that looks like it's in Little Italy or the West Village somewhere. No, it's in the village. It's right in, in the heart of Greenwich Village. Right. Yeah, but it was a nice big apartment, and a lot of room, and that's what's important in a in a shoot is that you have some room. If the place is too small, you have no place to put the crew and no place to put the cameras and the lights. It also limits your lens choices too, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so 
But Brad Rin looks awful good, doesn't he? He does. Doesn't he look like a young movie star? He does. This kid is just terrible waste. I guess, how old would he be today? He must have been about 25 there. So he's in his 50s now? Is that 20? Is this picture 25 years old? Well, this is the 80s, right? So it's about 30 years ago? 30 years old. So what, is he 50 now? Give or take. God bless you. Brad, if you're out there, give me a ring. Call me. <laughs> I'd like to know what happened to you. You deserved a lot better than you got. And she certainly deserved a lot better. She's kind of got a grace, a little bit of a Grace Kelly thing going on there. Yeah, with right. her hair up. Yeah, well, you know, I was Hitchcocking her up there. Hitchcock, he loved those beautiful blondes, and uh, I would like to make a movie with Tippy Hedren. Just tippy, with, t- Tippy, today or Tippy? Yeah, then, today. Yeah. Just, just for the hell of it. Sure. She's so associated with Hitchcock, in her way. And I know he hated her, and she hated him, but... Yeah, it's well documented. Yeah. She's actually made a career out of hating Hitchcock. I mean... Now, is this, uh, is this screening room in that building uh, This screening room is the... This is the Film Forum Theater in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. We rented the Film Forum for an afternoon when they had no movies playing. Right. And we used it as a screening room. You know where the Film Forum is? Uh, it's downtown somewhere, yeah. I think. Yeah. It was right across the street from the house that we used for uh, Perfect Strangers, where oh, okay, where all the action took place. And this is uh, directly across the street. Do you remember how many days you had to shoot this picture? I'd say three weeks. About three weeks? That's Wow. Three weeks, yes. Now, were you working five or six-day weeks? Usually six. Uh-huh. I think we shot 18 days. You got a lot of movie for 18 days because you you have a lot of different locations, different sets. Yeah, and and again, the lighting is awfully good on all these uh, particular uh, days. It would be odd to to point out that of the of one of the lowest budget pictures I ever did uh, is one of the best looking ones. I saw this film recently uh, at the Egyptian Theater, and it looks great on the big screen. Well, I think it's they did very a, handsome. I think they did a very nice job with the transfer for this video. And this is going to be a Blu-ray coming up, so it'll even look better, won't it? Sure. It'll, it'll, it'll be uh, sharper, stronger. Yeah. Great definition. So what more can you ask? I hope I get to see Eric Bogosian soon again because uh, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, I'll look him up when I get back to New York next month. What's, what's great about Bogosian is I think he's just... Certain actors are talented, but certain actors are interesting, and he's always interesting. He's always thinking. There's always something going on with him, and that's you want that in an actor. Oh, well, you, boom! Well, you know he's. <laughs> well, you know he's. What do you call? Kevin it? O'Connor just did a stunt. I know. You, you know he's. Bogosian has uh, done a, a number of notable plays mm-hmm. since that time, since this time, but he's had virtually no movie career. And I can't understand why they couldn't have found something for him to do. Right. Here, once again, we're just trying to turn the thing into something a little different by putting in these screen directions and the plot and everything, telling them how it works. And here you see the beautiful stained glass windows, which lit up at night in this 
in this Nesbitt house. These exteriors, I mean, to get that light on that street, you needed to have some, you know, some 10Ks or something like that? I think so, yeah. Did you have any problem with neighbors, you know, yelling and there trying no to blow takes? No or? neighbors on that street. Yeah. The only, only sign on that street was a big sign. There was an overpass, uh, on this, and they put up a big sign about uh, if, you're a, if, you're, if you're coming down here to pick up prostitutes, your photograph will be taken wow. and, and, and printed in the newspapers. That's how they were trying to deter people from uh, prostitution right. in the area. It's obviously it used to be a big pickup area for hookers. This is, this is not a very well-traveled part of town back in the 80s. This was, you know, like I said, the fringe of Manhattan. Yeah. And that's why it's so desolate. Well, it broke my heart when you told me just now that they tore the house down. Yeah, it broke my heart when I read it because it's such a great... Well, here we had... I was very disappointed with this shot. Uh, uh, a few minutes before, there was a huge wind, uh -huh. and the Christmas tree was being blown down the street. It was just... Like a tumbleweed. Uh, it was just coming down there like to beat the band. Right. And I said, get the, get the shot. But by the time they got set up, the tree had become stationary. <laughs> So, what could I do? I shot it anyway. <coughs> but it's not exactly what I wanted. But you can see him jumping up and down. It was cold. It was very cold. Now, when this gets cold like this, you know what I did? What's that? I went and took off my jacket. I took off my uh, sweater. And I went out there in a t-shirt. Why? Because if I could stand the cold, then the crew could stand the cold. Wow. So... Although I was crazy, I went out there and directed the scene in a t-shirt in freezing cold weather. And you know something? Nobody else could open their mouth about how cold it was. <laughs> and you know, uh, I didn't feel a thing because I'm so intent on directing the picture and so wrapped up in what I'm doing. I don't feel uh, any uh, uh, pain or any, uh, uh, you know, inclement weather. Yeah. Nothing bothers me. If I'm... If I'm making the movie, nothing bothers me. We finish shooting the picture, wrap up, I go home, I'm sick for a week. <laughs> I'm in bed for a week. Usually after every film we make, I collapse. And sometimes, uh, my sometime uh, uh, production manager, Paul Curtis, says I, I, get, I, get, I, I feign illness before the start of the picture. Right. But it never happens during the picture. I only get sick after the picture. I've driven myself to such a degree. I mean, I'm operating on four hours sleep every night. As a matter of fact, since I was single when this picture was being made, when we stopped shooting at midnight or one o'clock in the morning, I'd have them drive me to a club. And I'd go to one of these uh, uh, east side clubs. Uh, uh, no kidding. And I would dance. I would dance for two or three hours. Wow. Then I'd go home have a bowl of Wheaties, go to bed for two hours or something, and then they pick me up to go to the set. Are you drinking gallons of, <laughs> gallons of coffee during the day? Oh, I guess so. And, of course, the, one of the worst things is the, uh, is the food display. You know, they always put out the... Oh, craft services? Craft services. Love you, that look, shot. This, see Love this that shot, shot here? Yeah. This is part of the White House set. Really? Yeah, you've seen this. If you watch the, uh, the TV series about the White House... Kevin Spacey, uh -huh. you'll see that same set in a lot of the episodes. Kevin Spacey and his wife are usually seated in the room with that back, with those wow. windows in the background. 
I just, it was such a beautiful window, I just couldn't bear not to put it in the picture. And what was great about it was it was lit like a black and white noir. You know, there's very little color. It's all about the black and white. But it wasn't appropriate for that house. Yeah. But still, I put it in anyway. It just was too nice not to use. A great, a great shot sometimes is its own justification. I don't know. Uh, sometimes you say, "Well, why did I do that for?" But I don't think any. I don't think it bothers anybody. Look at this. Mm -hmm. This is that wall. And here you go with the. Uh, we've we've seen this location before when she walked down it originally. Right. So we brought it back again to try and. Uh, uh, you know, give you a uh, reorientation. Everything's starting to escalate as we head towards the climax. Climax, yeah. Well, and there's those beautiful flowers that are kind of pornographic. Everybody thought that this uh, particular artist was uh, a little, leaned a little towards the pornographic. The, uh, the, uh, the flowers always had a kind of a sexuality to them. Mm-hmm. And you can see what I mean. Sure. There are no bad, like New York City itself, there are no bad angles in this house. I love the uh, exposed roof as well. Exposed ceiling, rather. Yeah, I wonder what it cost him to, make, to build this place the way it is. <sighs> I, I, but I, I wonder if his paintings are of value. I have a painting. I bought a painting from him. Mm -hmm. When we were finished, I bought a painting from him for like, I don't know, he, he was kind. He gave it to me at a reduced price. But did, I he, did he like? Did he like the way the movie turned out? I don't know if he ever saw it. Wow! But he did. He did sell me a painting at a reduced price, and I have it hanging in my New York apartment to this day, and I'm glad I have it. I'm glad I have it. Well, this is a this movie is a, a real tribute to his house and to his environment. Well, the house lives on. Yeah. You know, I suppose there's no other record of this house in existence except this movie. So there you are. And, you, you know, I actually wonder, like, whatever happened to some of these paintings. And, and his paintings are huge. I mean, he oh, works so yeah, big. Yeah. I wonder if he's in a museum somewhere. I hope so. And Bogosian was in pretty good shape here. He was. Did he, did he and Zoe get along? Oh, yeah. They yeah. seemed to get along fine. There was no romance or anything between mm -hmm. them. As I told you, she always had this strange fellow with the, uh, with the, with the caftan and the slouch hat lurking about. <laughs> When she finished every day, yeah. he was waiting for her. And he, he did really look like uh, something out of a, a murder in the Rue Morgue or something. Vincent Price movie, yeah. Yeah. But she, it, he meant something to her, and he was very protective of her. Now, when you wrapped up the picture and you said goodbye to her, I mean... Never saw her again. Never saw her again, huh? No, I don't know if she ever saw the picture. I have no idea. I hope so, because she's really good in it. Yeah, I know. I, I, I would hope she might have seen the picture, but I don't know where she would have seen it, it until it played at the uh, uh, Joseph Papp's New York Shakespeare Festival Theater in Manhattan. I don't know where she would have seen it. I mean, look at this. This guy has got his own bar in the house. I mean, it's it's astonishing. There you are. Now you got the windows. And now there's, there's the... You notice what those are? Uh, the whole house is... Real old-fashioned. It's 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 got uh, the well, electrical is all circuit circuit breakers or or uh, I, I don't even know what what to call that stuff. That's fuses. Like, is fuses. What they that's what they are. Sure, they're fuses. Very 20th century. No, I had them build me a gigantic fuse. Mm -hmm. As a, 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 a Hitchcock, you know, he used to build these enormous props for some of his movies, 
like enormous hands and with a, holding a gun and things like right. that. Right. So we so, could get so we could get good close-ups. Yeah, on them? So we could do a, a certain kind of an angle. Well, I needed to have an angle of uh, of uh, fuses being screwed in, and uh, we had to have big big fuses for that. So I had that built. How, do you remember how long you had in this house? Did you shoot in this house for about half the schedule? I don't think we were here more than a week. No kidding. Well, we shot, once you're in the place, there's no more moving in, there's no more cabling in. Uh, half the time is spent transporting around. And New York is particularly de deadly because of transportation, right. trying to get from one place to another with your equipment trucks. The worst thing that can possibly happen to you in a New York movie is you have to move from one location to another in the same day. Right. So I always try to pick locations across the street from one another so we don't have to go anywhere. But once you leave, trying to get through all that traffic and all the other trucks that are blocking the streets is just a nightmare. So you can forget about shooting uh, and getting anything done. Did you leave your equipment in here overnight? Oh, we left everything here. With, we had, uh, I guess, a, a bodyguard in there. Mm -hmm. to watch over everything, uh, some kind of a caretaker. And, and, and he's moving around the house. You're seeing a little bit different angle. There's yeah. the beautiful pool. For the most part, it seems like you, you use deep focus lenses through most of the picture. Uh, almost makes it look like an older school Hitchcock movie to yeah. some degree. Well, it does look like a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. It's not quite as beautiful as Vertigo. But, but I must say... Uh, vertigo is not vertigo without Bernard Herrmann's music. Right. If you took Ver uh, Bernard Herrmann's music off of vertigo, the picture would be interminable. Different movie. Interminable. It's slow. Because he's, Jimmy Stewart is constantly following Kim Novak around mm -hmm. town. Nothing ever happens. And the music is carrying everything. I think the music in this picture was done by Michael Menard, right. who was a very nice young fellow who did uh, the other picture too, uh, Perfect Strangers. Very nice guy, and uh, he was just trying to break in, and that's all I could afford, and I was very pleased with the work he did. It was, uh, it was a lovely job. And here comes the screwing scene. He said he wanted to be screwed <laughs> to death. He said, I want to be screwed to death, so here he goes. He's going to be screwed to death. He's going to be screwed to death any minute, as soon as he falls in the pool. A lot of, a lot of stuff going on here. Yep, we got a lot there of different levels. And there he goes, and now the, oh boy, the stuntman went in there. Bang, that wasn't him. That wasn't our boy. That's that's really close, you're dropping that. Oh, here, comes the, the, here comes the screw. There you go. Ah. He was, he got his wish from the main titles. He got screwed to death, but not exactly in the manner that he anticipated. And here comes our boy. This is, this usually gets a big laugh. <laughs> I put this up in case anybody uh, didn't remember the name of the characters. So I want to make, make sure they knew who Philip Delroy was. I like the NYPD in parentheses. Yeah. And he's, He's now thinking of taking over the movie. Right. He, he's, he's like Sonny Grasso. He's become a movie producer. He started off as a technical advisor, and now he's going to be a movie producer. And there I am. You see me there? There you go. Doing my little Hitchcock appearance. Yes, I... You're, you're, you appear in most of your movies. Oh, yeah, I try to. 
Director Bombs at Murder, you see that? And here we are at the uh, air, uh, airline terminal, and I think we got some free airline tickets out of this as well. No kidding. Yeah. Because we shot the other scene here earlier. Right. And now here we are back again. So we shot this the same day. Was this LaGuardia or JFK? I, I believe it was LaGuardia. Yeah, with the, it, it kind of feels like it. And, and they're going to check on. And in this particular case, they're going home together. And he's going to bring the, uh, uh, the girl home and pretend it's his wife that ran away. Mm -hmm. She's going to have to pass for the wife and be a mother to the child that they left behind. And she's been driven so far out of her mind that she's so screwed up that she's going to go ahead with it. She's kind of brain dead, mm -hmm. and so is he. The two of them have had this ideal, and they're told that there's going to be a movie on the plane. You can't escape from the movies. No matter what you do, you cannot escape from the movies. Right. Again, she's just really, really good in this picture. I mean, it's almost like a Three Faces of Eve sort of thing. Isn't it amazing? Pan Am's gone also. Yeah. The no house kidding. is gone, Zoe's gone, and Pan Am is gone. Where is everything gone? What has happened? And, and, and nobody flies 747s domestically yeah. anymore either. Yes. Those are the days. And here comes the final credit, and we say, Philip Delroy film. Philip Delroy <laughs> is the detective. Right. He's gotten the credit for the film. So there you are. Uh, it becomes a Larry Cohen production. So there he is, good old Larry Cohen. I'm happy to be him. Paul Curtis was the production manager. Barbara Zitwar. It was a very nice people that worked on the film. And was this was the same crew that uh, worked on Perfect Strange. Just By the way, Phil Abraham, your assist, additional assistant, yes, was a cinematographer on The Sopranos, and now he's a director who's directed shows like Mad Men. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So Phil Abraham went on and did a lot of good stuff after after this. Well, I gotta look him up. I gotta look him up, find out where I can find him, because every once in a while I do run into somebody who worked on these films. And you believe it, they all have a nice affectionate feeling about the, uh, the, the job that they did. They all, they all think they had a great time and they forgot all the hardships and the pain and the suffering and all the, all the uh, uh, negatives. Everything is uh, good times, good times. They had John Worley was the studio executive. He did a very nice job and he's the, father, the husband in Perfect Strangers. Very good. By that's the way, that was TVC, was your lab, so. Yeah, that's where we yeah. shot the strangulation scene. Thank you, MGM, for releasing this picture and doing a nice job with the uh, wonderful new version of it on uh, Blu-ray. Thanks for Thank doing it. Thank you. Thank you, Larry, for Thank doing this Thank you very today. much. I'm very happy to have been here.